If you have your Bibles, open them up, turn them on. We're going to be in Luke chapter 16, working our way through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Chapter 16, we've been entitling Be Different, Make a Difference. And you'll recall that last week uh, we asked the question, when it comes to your money, do you have a grip on it or does it have a grip on you? And Jesus spoke very specifically of our relationship between with money in verses 9 through 13 of Luke chapter 16. And we identified three spiritual principles from those verses. Number one, money can be a tool to lead people to God. When God blesses you, you become a conduit that God can use to bless others. God blesses me to be a blessing. Number two, when you show yourself faithful with little things, God can trust you with greater things. You don't need to live anybody else's life. You need to live the life that God has given you. Be the person that God has called you to be. And when you are faithful with the little things, then God is able to trust you with greater things. And then thirdly, we saw the spiritual principle that you cannot serve both God and money. One of those will become your master. So enter into this discussion, the Pharisees, the hall monitors of Judaism, the Pharisees. They were very, very careful to follow the rules, to follow what is called the law. They were very regimented and disciplined in their religious activity, and they wanted to make sure that everybody else followed all the rules too. And one of the big problems that they had was they didn't just follow what the Scriptures taught, but they would add to the Scriptures, and they would make new rules and make it more and more difficult to try to follow all the teachings, and then they tried to use that in an oppressive way over the people. Outwardly, though, the Pharisees seemed to have everything together, but inwardly, they were insecure. Inwardly, they were controlling. And the passage today kind of gives us a glimpse into one of the problems that was going on in their lives beneath the surface. You see, their master was not God. Their master was money. So look at verse 14 of Luke chapter 16. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and scoffing at him. And he told them, you are the ones who justify yourself in the sight of others, but God knows your heart. Sometimes I, I wish I had a preacher cam where I could kind of just film the crowd as I preach, especially whenever I'm preaching on some of these delicate subjects, uh, like when we start talking about money or something like that, marriage or priorities. These are actually the subjects we're dealing with in Luke chapter 16, marriage, money, priorities. And because within a crowd, when you start dealing with uh, these sensitive topics, there's usually at least one or two scoffers in the audience and you can kind of just see it in their body language you know kind of sitting back here and they kind of roll their eyes a little bit and you know you can you can tell that they're just not enjoying the topic 
whatsoever. And, and that's what the Pharisees were. They, were. they were scoffers. And scoffers are great recruiters. Scoffers always try to get other people to come alongside them. And, and they try to help. They try to get our eyes off of Jesus and onto temporary things. In every work environment, in every church, there will always be some scoffers that try to take your eyes off of that which is really important and get your eyes on those things which don't really matter whatsoever. And so the Pharisees were trying to get people not to listen to Jesus, but instead to keep their eyes on those things that don't really matter. Now, one of the things that I love that Jesus does periodically in his, in his teaching is he will just jump into people's thoughts. They hadn't even said anything, and he just starts jumping into their brains and identifying what they're, what they're talking about. And so he basically says, okay, all right, you're justifying yourself in the sight of others, but, but you need to realize this. God knows your heart. And then here's what he says to the Pharisees. For what is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. Ouch. That, I don't know about you, that kind of hurts What is highly admired by people can be revolting in God's sight. You see, for the Pharisees, the exterior was attractive. On the outside, they were doing everything that someone would say you needed to do to be right with God, and they were trying to make sure that everybody else did everything that they were supposed to do, but inwardly... They had a heart that was revolting to the very God that created them. And so Jesus presses in. He says, the law and the prophets were until John. And since then, the good news of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed, and everyone is strongly urged to enter it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the letter in the law to drop out. So, John the Baptist, you guys remember John the Baptist? John the Baptist was, on, was first string on the all-prophet team. Uh, John the Baptist is one of the most underrated characters in Scripture. When people talk about who's their favorite character other than Jesus in the Bible, uh, rarely do you hear people say John the Baptist, but he's very, very significant. He, he marked a transition point in Scripture, particularly a transition point between the Old Testament, uh, the Law and the Prophets, the poetic books of the Old Testament, and Jesus and the incarnation and the work of Jesus and the atonement. John the Baptist was kind of this pivot point. He was this transitional figure within the Scriptures. And so, catch this, uh, the Law and the Prophets find their fulfillment in Jesus. Everything about the Law and the Prophets was ultimately pointing to Jesus. And so when John the Baptist comes onto the scene, he, he is pointing people to the good news of the, of the kingdom of God. Everything that you have learned, everything that you have seen, all of our rituals in the temple, all the sacrifices, uh, the ark, all of that, it is pointing to the Son of God, 
Jesus Christ. And that's why John the Baptist told people to repent and be baptized. Why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God, what God desires to do in the hearts of men and how that work of the gospel will overflow your life and mine and it will expand to make disciples and to be a part of the plan of God literally around the world. The kingdom of God was at hand and John the Baptist says, repent and and prepare yourself to be a part of this incredible movement of God that he's doing through his son in our hearts that's going to have a, a global scope and Jesus, he says, Everyone is being urged to enter the kingdom of God and to be a part of it and to join God in what he's doing and to see God do incredible things. And yet the Pharisees are so stuck, stuck in themselves, stuck on trying to be good enough, stuck on trying to control people, stuck in their insecurity that they are missing. What God is doing. I pray that we never be so self centered that we miss the very presence of God right in front of us. Well, this series is all about the Christian being different in order to make a difference. Christianity will cause you to break away from the scoffers, and to embrace kingdom values. Christianity, when it takes root deep within your heart, it will change you. It will change your perspective. It will change how you see other people. It will change how you relate to other people. It will change your priorities. And Christians need to understand that often, what is highly admired by other people may be revolting in God's sight. There are things that can be celebrated and applauded in society that are revolting in God's sight. But don't tell the Pharisees that. Don't tell them that. Because they're not going to listen to true spiritual truth. They rejected John the Baptist worked towards his death. And they also scoffed at Jesus and worked towards his crucifixion. The Pharisees want to control you. They want to convince you, to capture you, so that you miss out on the kingdom of God. Now let's go, let's go back to the idea that Jesus set up last week. And that is the idea that you ultimately cannot serve both God and money. Now, there's nothing inherently evil about money. We all need it to function in life. But when we begin worshiping money, when it becomes our master, it leads us to do things that move us away from God. And so, uh, if you're kind of looking at life and the top priority in your life is money, it's going to distort your relationships. So suddenly, because you are consumed with the master of money, you're not going to see your marriage clearly. You're not going to see family clearly. clearly. They're going to be distorted. And even beyond that, it's going to distort your view of God so that you misunderstand God. 
Now, if you turn that around and you have a healthy view of God, that then leads you to begin to have a healthy view of the relationships that mean the most to you, the relationships of life. And it also allows you to have a healthy view of money and other resources that might be in your life because you understand where they come from, you understand why they're there, and you're able to live with a healthy, godly balance. But the Pharisees had an unhealthy relationship with money, and that was leading them, because money had become their master, it was leading them to have an unhealthy understanding of marriage and love and human relationships. And so look with me in verse 18. Jesus now says, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And everyone who marries a woman, divorced from her husband, commits adultery. So the Pharisees had levels of sin. Legalistic Christianity will always have this. You've got to create levels of sin because if you're in a very controlling environment, these levels of sin help you feel good about yourself. Because you understand that you're a sinner, but you can kind of puff yourself up because my sin's not as bad as your sin. Okay? And so you feel good about yourself because, you know, I'm only a level two sinner. You're a level one sinner. Okay? And so within their mindset, divorce was considered like a level two sin. It was bad, but it was acceptable. Adultery, though, was a level one sin. Okay? That was part of the Big Ten. You can't do that. That Boy, that, that's just bad. Okay? And so here's what was happening. Whenever someone became attracted to another person outside of their marriage, and they started having eyes for another, the Pharisees would say, don't cheat on your spouse. That would be wrong. Don't commit adultery. Just get divorced. Just get divorced, and then you can marry them, and then you haven't cheated on your spouse. You've just, you know, you've just traded this for this, and everything's good. You're happy. And Jesus says, no. If you're divorcing your spouse in order to marry another person because you like this other person outside of your, you're committing adultery. That's still wrong. He says it doesn't work that way. Now, let's talk for a few minutes about marriage. Because marriage and family are areas where Christians must absolutely be different in order to make a difference. In America, over the last 50 years, there has been an intentional redefining of some things that have been foundational to our society historically. There's been a redefining of the value of life, a redefining of personhood. There's been a redefinition of what love is, what intimacy is supposed to be about, and along with that has come a change in marriage and family, so much so that you sometimes hear Networks talk about a new kind of family. It's all kind of part of the new definition as to what family and life is supposed to be all about. And so I find that sometimes 
it's important for me to remind you of what biblical marriage is and why family is such a big deal. Because marriage and family have distinctively Christian roots that go all the way back to the book of Genesis. In fact, we'll be talking about some of these things here uh, from, from Genesis. And marriage and family are a big deal. To understand this, you must first of all understand that life is a gift from God. You see, one of the fundamental differences between a Christian and a secular person is that as a Christian, we do not believe that life is a result of random activity. We do not believe that you are just an evolutionary uh, lottery winner. But we have a God who created us in the beginning, God. And what did God do? God created. In fact, you know what? If you can believe the first verse of the Bible, the rest of the Bible is easy. Okay? If you believe that there is a God and that God can create everything, the rest of the Bible is easy. Resurrection simple, right? If he can create everything. Okay, so if God created, then that means that as a Christian, I believe that life is not just random and that there is a God who created me. And in that creation, there is design and there is meaning and there is intentionality. He created not just me, but the world around me with purpose. And so as we move into Genesis 1 and verse 27, we begin to see that human beings were created in the image of God. God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. And then notice the last line there. He created them what? Male and female. So not only do we believe that there is a creator, but we also believe that God created humankind and that when he created humankind, he created gender, male and female. It's not a fluid situation. It is something that God has birthed us with because there is supposed to be a complement of gender. You may not have completely realized this yet, but men and women can be different sometimes. Okay? I know we're, we're equally valued before God. It's not a difference in intelligent levels or, anything, or value or anything like that. But, but men and women have a natural complement to one another. I mean, I see this. I got two girls and two boys. They're different, okay? There's just a natural complement about that. And God made you a man or God made you a woman and, and embrace the gender that God has created you with because it's one of those immutable facts about who you are. Well, as we continue in Genesis, we, we haven't even gotten past the first cup of coffee and reading of the Bible, and we're coming across all sorts of truths about society and personhood and life. You get to chapter 2 and verse 24, you begin to discover that at maturity, a man and a woman uh, leave their families of birth and they marry. And whenever a man and a woman marry, they become one flesh and they establish a, a new family. We talk about leaving and cleaving. At a certain point, you leave the family of your birth and you cleave to your spouse and you establish a new family. 
So a couple things here that you need to realize. Life is created by God. Gender is established by God. And marriage, all the way back in Genesis, is a God idea. It precedes anything that we have dreamed up within our culture or within our thoughts. There is an idea of leaving and cleaving and establishing a new family through marriage. If you're a parent or a grandparent who has a child living with you, I I often use this definition for parenting. It's teaching and training your children to leave. (laughs) We love having them, but one day they need to move out, right? Because we want to equip them so that they can go out and leave and cleave and establish a family of their own and be, be who God created them to be. In chapter 1 and verse 28 and chapter 2 and verse 25 of Genesis, we are introduced to the idea of sexual intimacy. I'll just use the term intimacy here on out. And we discover that intimacy was created by God and it has a purpose. And its purpose is to illustrate marriage. That intimacy illustrates the man and the woman coming together as one flesh. That two have become one and a new family has begun. It was designed by God for this purpose. To illustrate the marital covenant. I often call it a private renewal of your public vows. You come together and you renew your vows in this way. And we know that as that occurs, then the family, which began with two people leaving their homes and coming together as one, can multiply. And that through marriage, uh, babies are brought into this world and they are born into a family and life is extended to new generations and the family continues to grow. Now these are real simple thoughts, but somehow within our culture they've become confused. And children are to be raised by their parents who are to be responsible parents and they are to be raised by their parents who are following God and loving one another. And the ideal way for a child to grow up is in a family that has been established by God. All these things are not my individual expression. They're not just a societal definition. All these things are rooted in the God who created us. Children are also to be a part of an extended family. Grandparents are important. When you have grandchildren, don't check out on them and just live your life. Be involved in their life. Aunts and uncles, cousins, they're important. And church is important. We're part of that extended family established by God so that the children of our world have adults who are pouring into them, raising them, providing them security and love so that they can grow up to be the people that God created them to be. Now, I realize that we live in a fallen world. And I realize that there is sin and that people do things and that many of you in this room have probably had people do things to you 
that causes you to have to live in a scenario that is not ideal. To kind of make the best of where you are. Not every kid gets to grow up with a mom and a dad. My mom, her mother died whenever she was 25 years of, whenever my mom was two, her mom was 25 years of age when she died. And so my mom didn't get to grow up in that type of family that I described. There are times when, for whatever reason, there's a child that uh, is in need of adoption. I'm so thankful for families that are willing to adopt children. There are times when you wind up doing the best you can and you still find yourself alone or you find yourself, you're just having to do the best that you possibly can to honor God and raise children in a tough situation. But I want you to realize that family is a page one truth of the Christian faith. Mom and dad, grandparents, what would you do if someone tries to hurt your children? What would you do if someone broke into your home trying to hurt your children? I'm not a huge guy, but if you broke into my home trying to hurt my children, you better bring a sack lunch because you're going to have a fight on your hands. You know what? I'm going to defend them. I'll defend them to the death if need be. We all, as parents and grandparents, when it comes to those little ones, we're a line of defense. Don't hurt them. The greatest threat to the family today is this growing idea that the family is no longer important, that marriage is no longer important, that it's no longer sacred, that it's anything that we want it to be. If I wanted to tear apart the importance of the family, I would need to be subtle about it. Because if I attacked it head on, I would probably lose. And so if I wanted to change the importance of family in society, I'd have to be really subtle and wise about it. And so I might begin with redefining our origins. Instead of saying that we come from God, instead of saying that we have a Creator, I would begin with the idea that, no, we're just a random act. It just kind of happened over millions of years. We just kind of evolved, and so all there is is me. I'm not answerable to any Creator. I'm just answerable to myself. And then I would subtly begin redefining intimacy so that it no longer really had a meaning. It no longer really illustrated marriage. But instead, intimacy would become just an expression of me. So it's just whatever I want it to be. I can extend intimacy to whoever I want because it belongs to me, not God. It illustrates me, not marriage. And if I could subtly begin changing people's thoughts on that, then I could subtly begin attacking the family. Then I would go after the definition of success. If I wanted to get after your family, I just need to begin redefining what success is all about. 
I would say it's not measured by relationships. It's not measured by the impact that you make in people's lives. No, successful is, success is measured by your bank account. It's measured by what you experience through your money. It's, it's, mari- it's measured by your financial resources. And those are the great successes of life, not the people that have healthy relationships and the people that spend their lives in ways that impact others. And then if I really wanted to get after your children and your grandchildren, I would begin redefining responsibility. I would say that food, water, and shelter, security, education, well-being, worldview, morals, ethics, religion, all those things are not to be taught within the family. All those things are to be taught within society. And if you gave me about a hundred years, and if you gave me about three trillion dollars, and multiple media outlets teaching these ideas, and if you gave me a system of education, then I think I could succeed in tearing your family to shreds. Because I would get people to think entirely different than what God has said about the family. But you know what? That's not going to happen. You know why? Because God's people are a line of defense. God's people are there to say, when you break into the home and you try to attack the family, it's not going to happen. We understand some things. We understand that we were created. We understand who God created us to be. We understand the importance of marriage. We understand the importance of family. And as Christians, we have to decide, you know what? I'm going to be different in order to make a difference. It doesn't mean you go around uh, whacking everybody around with your Bible and that you play whack-a-mole with people that don't agree with you all the time. You have to learn to dialogue and you have to learn to be loving even with people that are different than you. But as a Christian, there ought to be something different about you. And your understanding of marriage and your understanding of family doesn't come from human opinion. It comes from God Himself. So the other night, I'm having dinner with the family. It's a party and a hurricane as usual around my house, trying to have dinner with the family. And so I'm looking at all my, all my kids, and I'm just thinking to myself, I, I want so much for them. There's so much I, d- I just want for them. There's nothing I wouldn't do for them. Later on, I was thinking about Trying to be a godly father, that's an awe-inspiring job description. And the Holy Spirit just kind of reminded me that the greatest gift that I can, I can give them is to give them a family where they see a loving father. And they see me as dad loving God. And they see me as dad loving their mom. And they see me as dad taking responsibility to try to raise the household in the faith. They see me being a spiritual leader that leads us not to just think about ourselves, but to think beyond ourselves and to love others 
And they need a dad that loves them and models for them the love of our Heavenly Father. And my prayer is the same for our church. That when people are a part of this church, that they'll experience a family. That the children that grow up in this church, that they will grow up in a family. And they will be taught to love God. And they will be shown what it looks like to love one another. To genuinely care about one another. To continue loving people even when they're not lovable. And that the kids that run these hallways will be taught what it looks like to love others. And that they will experience people that love them. As a kid growing up in the Victory Baptist Church, I didn't, I didn't really know what it was like to have grandparents. None of my grandparents were really very close to me. But in that church, I, I found Miss Katie. She used to always bake me chocolate cakes. And I found Miss Esther, who prayed for me every day. And there in that church, I found Brother Pop. And Brother Pop, he, he had lived a really wild life before God got a hold of him. And he used to sit me down and say, don't be like me. And I found Brother Norris, who was our music minister, who was just one of the most godly, gracious men you can ever meet. And it wasn't a fancy church. We didn't have all the bells and whistles. But it was a family. And as a kid growing up in that church, the family taught me. And they taught me what it looked like to love God and what it looked like to love one another and what it looked like to stick together and to care about others and to share the gospel. And so my prayer for your family today is that you'll be different so that you can make a difference. That you'll let Scripture define for you who you want to be. Be different and you can make a difference. Would you be so kind as to bow your heads with me, please, as the band begins to make their way forward. We come to the time of the service that we call the time of commitment. Listen, church, I'm here at the front and if there's anything that I may pray with you about, as a pastor, I take, I take great honor in being able to pray with people and encourage them in their walk. I'm praying for your family. I'm praying for your marriage. I'm praying for our church to be a family. And I ask that you will join me in that prayer. Heavenly Father, we bow our heads before you and we lift up our deepest human relationships to you. Father, we will lift up the relationship that we have with our spouses, with our parents, with our children, our grandchildren, the relationships that we have with one another. And we pray, Father, that we might see them as gifts from You. Help us, Father, not to distort to distort that which is really important, that which comes from You. I pray, Lord, that we won't spend our days chasing after things that don't matter. 
worried about things that don't matter and miss out. Miss out on those little ones that are standing right in front of us. Miss out on that neighbor that needs us to pray for them and to care about them. Miss out on that opportunity to really make a difference because we're so busy chasing things that don't. I pray, Father, as a church that we might love one another. And I pray that each of us might experience a family here. I know, Lord, that there's some people in this room, their childhood story was horrendous. Maybe they've been burned by marriage. Life has been hard. But I pray that right here in this church, they'll experience a family. And we pray that you will help us to be different, to be godly, so that we might make a difference. It's in the name of Christ we pray. In the name of Christ we worship. Amen.